This is Bar Crawl Radio, and today we are on the street to talk about open streets and the future of streets as places for community connection, culture, performance, and food. Though Mayor Bill de Blasio, the Department of Transportation, and the NYPD were not ecstatic about opening our Upper West Side streets to walkers, bikers, skaters, and podcasters, Eventually, the mayor committed to 100 miles of open streets. Fast forward to June 2020, the Open Restaurant Initiative allowed for outdoor dining on sidewalks and curbside. The burgeoning open streets program in Manhattan has had little, maybe no help from the city, no financing, and it relies entirely, almost, on volunteers. On top of that, street barriers are woefully inadequate as cars stream through what is supposed to be open streets, and the current program puts volunteers at risk for lawsuits due to unclear liability rules. One anecdote. The end of last summer, Barcrow Radio was ordered off an open street on West End Avenue by two sets of officers from the local precinct 24. But today... We and a bunch of talented artists and business advocates and Upper West Side neighbors have taken over West 103rd Street, the very street on which the great film actor Humphrey Bogart grew up. I am Rebecca McCain with my Bar Crawl Radio co-host, Alan Winson. And today, we are set up outside of 250 West 103rd Street. And here we go. They, 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 like, stick to one topic. Yeah. That would bore me out of my mind. <laughs> you know? I'd like, be like, what are we going like to talk about next? I'd like to go to a bar and, like, meet someone I never met before. So do you normally record at bars? Yeah. Well, before yes. COVID, yeah. Yeah, before COVID, we did. We, we got a kind of a, a, a residency. We got a residency uh-huh. at, at, at um, Gephardt's. Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on 72nd Street. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but Matt has, it's they've suffered there. Yeah, they, like mean, all of them did. He didn't, yeah, and he didn't have very much street space, you know? Right, it was, a, uh-huh. it was kind of a narrow So bar. that's one of the things we should And that's the voice of Henry Reinhardt, former owner of Henry's Restaurant on 105th Street, to talk about how open streets can benefit Upper West Side restaurants and businesses. And we're uh, proud to be joined by Lisa Orman of Streetopia Upper West Side, the organizer of this fantastic open street event. Right here on West 103rd Street for an open street festival to celebrate and to honor and to bring forth an idea of, of open streets. And we're going to be talking with several people who are interested in the idea of open streets. We're going to begin with Lisa. Um, okay. You, and and t- tell us who you are, because you're a fill-in. You're a pinch hitter. <laughs> but you're running this thing. Yes. Tell us who you are wh- sure. and, and the kinds of things you've done. And you've you've been on Barkwell Radio before, so just relax. I'm a, I'm a regular guest. Exactly. So, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm Lisa Orman. I'm the director of Streetopia Upper West Side, and we are... Uh, one of the organizers for today's event. So Streetopia Upper West Side, along with uh, time-lapse dances, Jody Sperling, 
and Sarah Lind organized this event. And this is one of many events we've organized uh, to really take over the street, um, bring it back to the people, and allow for joyful play in the street and uh, coming together of the community. So uh, we're excited to be out here and, and so excited to be on Bar Crawl again. And why did you get involved in this? Well, I uh, run an organization that believes that the streets should be for the people and that unfortunately we've designed our streets around uh, the storage and movement of automobiles. And so this is, a, this is our streetopia right here. And uh, so that's why we organized it. All right, and, and right across the street, I can see Humphrey Bogart's ghost <laughs> looking at us down from the window there. Exactly. Because he played stickball on this street. Yeah, back in the day. Back when the, the used horse to do and that. carriages were coming by. Yeah. Oh, is that the building right there? Over there? Yeah, you, yeah, you, can, you can see, see it. You can see the, uh, the plaque. plaque. Yeah. yeah. Right okay. across from 250. I don't know what the address is, but. Well, it actually wasn't until the 1950s that we allowed for parking on the street. And so before that, you know, the streets really were for the people. Um, and kids routinely played in the street. And, and, we would love and to there see are that kids again. out there. This was supposed to be an open street, but I count five cars sitting on this block. Yeah, are they, bring that are up they allowed to right be now. here? Big fat <laughs> no, jeeps. They are no. not. No, they are no. not. So we put up the no parking signs from the NYPD uh, this week. We flyered cars many days this week. We came out on alternate side sweeping days and talked to drivers all week. Nice. And like <laughs> oh darn, they didn't all leave. So apparently they didn't get the memo. So we, we have work to do. We sure do. To for the people to take over. I see the kids over here, they're getting lined up to to do some kind of an activity. It's it's wonderful. And we've got a lot of politicos out here who are yes. running for the yes. district six. Yeah, it's very um, active. They keep very, very active today. Coming over, want to take over our mic, Dancers. but uh, they they can't. Not <laughs> feeding them off with a stick. Not, yeah. not today. Yeah. Not we'll today. schedule it. We'll schedule it. So Henry, tell yeah. us about outdoor initiative. First thing I want to say is that I'm here because I'm a Lisa uh, Orman groupie. I've been following Lisa's vision for the Upper West Side and Streetopia Upper West Side for 15 years. Yep, 15 years. And I just want to say that uh, the progress we're making is quite extraordinary. It's, it's really, you don't see it if you're in it every day necessarily, but as we come back out of a pandemic, we are actually making tremendous progress. One of the things that we did over the course of the pandemic was open streets for restaurants that allows people to come out and dine where there used to be a, a parked car. And so we're really, we are making progress, but as you point out, there's so much progress, more, more progress to be made. The reason we're here today, besides Lisa's vision, is because of that sound in the background of kids playing in a street is more important than your parked car. For all the obvious reasons, public health, economic health, racial justice, equity and access. And this is the city that we want to see. And it's slowly taking place across the city. This is really not related, but I'm just really curious. What happened to Henry's? And how come <laughs> you're not you still there? The best restaurant ever. Oh, thank you very much. It was uh, 20 years, and I was about to sign up for another 20 years. And I <laughs> added that 20 years to my age. <laughs> and I discovered that I had accomplished everything I wanted to. And who knew there was a pandemic coming? But that was a really uh, 
very, you very... Got a, you got out just in time. Yeah. I did, but I miss, <laughs> I miss us all. I miss my Upper West Side people a lot. I am just over in Harlem, and I, I really thank you very much for saying it. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, I love our Henry's crowd, and we will, we will be a joy to each other, even without Henry's. Okay, all right. So, so as awful as it seems, yes. has the pandemic opened people's imagination to what can be done for the Upper West Side businesses by opening the streets? I'm so glad you asked about the connection to businesses because one of the things the pandemic taught us is before the pandemic, we were in a retail crisis across the city. Co-ops, condos, uh, building owners were losing tremendous amounts of money. 33% retail vacancies on Madison Avenue in New York City. Similar numbers on Broadway on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And one of the reasons is because we're addicted to cars. We've been sold an addiction like cigarettes. Cars in cities are the new cigarettes. And driving is the new smoking. And if people learn, just like people used to stand in my restaurant and blow smoke in my face for 10, 12, 14 hours a day, we can't afford for you to store, store your car for free in front of our multi-million dollar building, in front of our multi-million dollar business. I need, in order in retail, in any industry, you need foot traffic to survive. You don't need car traffic, you need foot traffic. And the density of transportation we need to activate our streets is made up by pedestrians and cyclists and has nothing to do with the use of the private motor vehicle. It's and, and so it has happened, actually. We've seen it in the pandemic. I totally see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. If, if uh, Lisa hadn't uh, created this event, yep. we, this street would be empty. Yep. You hear cars and tires kind of yep. like running along. Here we have a, a it's alive. Where are these it's people when this isn't, they don't have access to this? Where are all these kids? They're sitting in their house looking at computers and looking at computer screens. It's manifestly unhalf, unhealthy and it's unsustainable financially for us to use our streets in this way. The streets were originally designed for other vehicles to travel on and pavement was actually designed more for bicycles than it was for cars. But just as a, as a business or public health or racial or economic justice issue, we cannot afford to subsidize cars in our cities any longer. Right. Uh, let's talk about your initiative, outdoor dining. Yeah, so out to open restaurants was part of the open, is a natural extension of open streets. If you, if you say we're not going to use this space for this storage of a private motor vehicle, what other uses could we have? There's really no other use in existing in the world for public space on a thoroughfare other than food and beverage service that does as much and returns as much to the community. For 20 years at Henry's, I served the community. I had a staff of 70, 100 people there to help you every day. Open streets, for open restaurants on open streets is a citywide initiative that has a one-page application that is self-certified and free that allows a business to use a parking spot for service. So Andy Manchel, a great Upper West Side restaurant, uh, Upper West Side advocate, is one of the people responsible for Bryant Park in New York City. And what Andy Manchel teaches us is that all we need to do is take out the car and put out a table and chair, and you will have the return of civil society, but you will also have the return of safety, public health, and commerce that will be sustainable 
and is a sustainable proposition for the city and all the buildings in the city. Okay, but about that, I have to tell you, as a, a citizen of this city, traveling it, traveling through it, at one point, it, I thought I was in a third world country with all of these kind of shacky looking right. things. Yeah, 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 <laughs> is there yeah. any plan for beautifying that? Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. Uh, of the 10,000 plus locations where there are um, outdoor dining and parking spaces, there's a huge array of incredibly beautiful and incredibly shabby. And for those of us, it's like a snowstorm in New York City. Snowstorm in New York City is magic while it's happening and for 12 hours afterwards. And then from 12 hours till it's gone, it's a it mess. is a disaster as and be. is yes. depressing and horrible. Yes. Not every, remember, all of these structures were built by businesses in distress. Every single one of these had insufficient regulatory guidance, insufficient capital, insufficient access to design. And they still, some of the biggest companies in the world have given free on-street dining to businesses throughout the city. American Express built free outdoor. There's a pagoda in front of one of my favorite restaurants in New York City, Nomwa Tea Parlor on Doyer Street in Chinatown. There are four custom-built gorgeous pagodas that totally embellish the street scene that were free, provided by one of the wealthiest companies in the world. That's cool. That's great. I didn't know that. Oh, it's wonderful. I learned something. And also uh, out in Brooklyn near McCarran Park at Lilia, oh, American yeah. Express built yurts in the streets so that fun. are stunning. And conservatively, those two locations might be worth a couple million dollars a year wow. in revenue. In part, this has happened because of the pandemic. Yes, but it predated that. Lisa, or Lisa Orman, many of us have been working on this issue for decades. If you, I just was asked by Clarence Eckerson at Street Films about, you know, is this a pilot program? This, this is not about a proof of concept. This is a guaranteed return on investment, unlike any other available in the civic realm, where you can literally return on investment within days and months and. and Definitely within a year. But there are a lot of businesses that are closing. A lot of, I mean, we're, we're Bar Crawl Radio. Right. So our favorite bar, Gephardt's Beer Culture yeah, Bar, Gephardt. because, yeah, yeah. because Gephardt. they allow us to broadcast, yeah, I mean, yeah, to, yeah. to record from there. I don't know that they're going to open again. A hundred percent. The loss in the industry and in, in the hospitality industry in New York City is cataclysmic, but there are amazing amounts of great survivors still out there. And I, I just want to tell you an interesting story. I've talked to a hundred restaurateurs in New York City who report that their investment in on-street dining has left them, now that they're over 50% capacity inside, has left them year over year improving their sales, not year over year over 2020, year over year over 2019. Well, wow. If you go to Veselka in the East Village, the place is booming day and night. They have extensive outdoor dining. It's a huge business success. So yes, we can focus on all the loss and the death and destruction, both of people and businesses that have happened in our city. But this is a story that is so good for the public health, for the environmental health, for the financial health of our city, that it's almost extraordinary that it's not bigger. But it is huge. Let's remember that. And also remember, oh, Jody Sperling's here. Yes. And also remember that um, this is happening in cities all over the country. 
This is happening extensively throughout the United States. This is happening in Los Angeles. This is happening in Cincinnati. This is happening with in open streets all over the country. Yeah, Denver, Colorado has Boulder, Colorado has incredible, incredible outdoor streets. And Oakland, I hear too. Oakland yeah. as well. Right. Yeah. What, what what happens in the winter? I mean, I, I this summer, even last summer, yeah. before we really knew what we were doing, yeah. and figuring it out, and then the winter, everything went dead. Yes and no. I mean, uh, you have to buy some really fancy-looking uh, winter clothes that and, you can go heaters. out and right. eat in. And, and the structures now are really quite comfortable, but people dine out all throughout the winters in Nordic countries and far northern latitudes than New York City. And New York City actually has quite a temperate climate. I am a mass in the hospitality business in New York City, you become a master of microclimates. And you know that one side of the street completely different than the other side of the street. And the problem in New York City is not really precipitation, it's wind. And you can protect from wind really, really easily. And I ate outdoors all throughout the winter in every part of town, including on the Hudson River. But you know, you gotta you gotta have some design into it. But in order for people, creative people to go in and design that space, they need to have regulatory certainty. So the city needs mm -hmm. to clearly communicate what are the ground rules, and then people can invest even more in our community, and we'll have a more beautiful, more vibrant, more sustainable community with, ready for this, better food and drink, and most importantly, service. Nice. You can get served in the street, like in cities all over the world. Mm. You feel like you're in Rome. You feel like you're in parts of France. You, you, me you mentioned Rome. I mean, one of my primary experiences in Rome is eating on a little street outdoors. The best. You know, a little, little, some motorcycles best. going Absolutely. by, but you know. Yeah, so street. are they here to stay then? Yes, 100%. They will That's not great. be able to turn away from the income, the job generation, the property value increases. So just so we're clear, the retail rent increases and retail sale increases in the pedestrianized Times Square in the middle of New York City, downtown Brooklyn, all throughout our city. If you go to Stone Street, Stone Street in Brook, uh, Stone Street in the Financial District, those restaurants are packed morning, noon, and night because they have access to safe outdoor space. All right. Well, well thank well, you so much, Henry. And thank, thank you, Henry, Henry Ryan Hart. Thank you for, thank for you, being Lisa. with us. Thank you so much. And yeah. Lisa, thank you for joining us. And hey, we're going to be moving pleasure. on to our to our next. Uh, yes. So we're going to be talking about arts on the street in our next next segment, and uh, we'll be starting. Uh, Pretty soon, right now. Beautiful day here on the Upper West Side. I know, you couldn't ask for a better day. And we order the weather. Jody Sperling is the creative force behind Time Lapse Dance. We spoke with Jody last summer during Parking Day, and she understands the connection between streets, expression, public space, and community. Jody and her team of talented dancers have dazzled outdoors audiences, showing that streets can be used for so much more than the cars and storage of autos. Robin Chattel is a founder and director of Open Culture Works, a company born from the Open Streets movement. She helps artists and art institutions perform in the streets, plazas, and parks of New York City. Robin is an outspoken advocate for open streets and knows what it's going to take to make New York City's cultural institutions and artists thrive. Thank Welcome. you for joining us on 103rd Street. Humphrey Bogart. Uh, exactly, we were just talking about that. He's right. I just watched um, Maltese, uh, the Maltese Falcon. I haven't seen Maltese Falcon in a long oh time. We should watch that. It's really a great film. 
So tell us more about your organizations. Jody, we spoke last summer about time-lapse dance. Remind our listeners what you do and how you've been keeping busy over the last few months. Yeah, so our mission is to deploy dance to bring people together in ways that are more sustainable and more equitable. And we do that through performances, whether they're on the street or in the theater, or uh, whether they're uh, for recorded media online or whether they're live. We've been focusing obviously this last year on the sort of the street activations and media. One of the things that's happened in the, during the pandemic is that dance has just spilled over radically into life. And uh, it's been exciting. I think we've been sort of on the, we had been, you know, involved in that as our sort of, you know, priority, but it's just been wonderful to see how resilient the dance world is and how active everybody is in making dance part of our lives and our communities and our streets. And it's so necessary right now because just finding these ways of being together is deeply meaningful and also really, we need it more than ever. It, I was. I had a chance to go down and watch the young woman um, doing the dance with the with the mask. It was amazing. She her face was backwards, and she did the whole dance. I'm, so, I'm sorry, it I missed was amazing. It. Yes. Robin, let's uh, talk a little bit about what you're doing. Your website, Open Culture Works, says uh, that it is grounded in the belief that the arts are a vital and integral part of a healthy society. I mean, I've been working, you know, the arts is my life and my career, and I've been doing this, you know, for 30 plus years. And I, I, I just really believe that it's part of a healthy society. And we always talk about how, how, how people are uplifted by the arts and the arts is a healing tool. And, and also, we also talk a lot about, you know, from the economic standpoint, how it's an economic driver. And so, you know, a lot of that talk has been just amongst ourselves, but I think COVID's really shown that when it's not here, it's really missing and it's really important. And so Open Culture Works, you know, I, I was looking, for, I'm an outdoor public program producer and I uh, started festivals in parks and I've done a lot of stuff outside and I ran Museum Mile Festival for The Museum years, Mile Festival, Where right. you basically close Fifth Avenue down to traffic. It's like, and, and not only do you close it to traffic, but you have no cars, no vendors. It's a pure go see art, experience art uh, uh, event. You know, when COVID came around, of course, my, my work stopped. You know, gathering of people together kind of stopped, right? <laughs> From an arts perspective. And then when this... Even gathering outside. Yeah, well, gathering anywhere, really. Yeah. In the beginning, I You know, yes. and, you know, the Open Streets has been a program that's been a, that, that I think is fabulous. But Open Culture is really the, prog the, the initiative that I, I grabbed onto, which is came out, which grew out of Open Streets from the city and open restaurants, which was just an initiative... Uh, actually became legislation passed by the city council to designate certain city streets specifically for arts and cultural groups and and um, those and those arts and cultural groups would be allowed to charge admission which is you cannot do in public spaces in New York City when you're getting a permit so that was when I heard that I thought that's what I do I, I need to help what can I do as a person who's pr produced outdoors who knows about being outside not only just how to navigate si the city the city agencies of doing that but what does it mean to be outside? You're not you're not in a controlled environment. You're in someone else. You know the outside the outside is everyone's. So that's how I've got involved. So these are permitted events at certain times of the year, or certain days of the, the year. This is a, it was sort of like a stopgap, really. I think it came about um, as a way to help really the not-for-profits that are venues that are closed so that they can bring their performances outdoors. As a, and it was it, it's supposed to be, and go through October only. It was it, but it made it into legislation. So, you know, for me, I'm thinking this is not temporary. Like, I think that, you know, bringing the arts outside into communities and working within communities also 
because that's what I'm interested in, not just you know bringing a, a, an arts group to someone's neighborhood, but actually finding those artists in that community and working with them on a local level. Absolutely. So I think this is a permanent and, program. And, and, and the Upper West Side is like, we're chock full of artists. Well, and I mean, actually, that's what we're doing here in this neighborhood. Um, and it's why we picked this location, because I live uh, just a few blocks from here. And also Jill Sigmund, who is performing, is also a neighbor. Lisa lives around the corner. And you feel like we're here. We want to perform in our back, literally in our backyard, but then invite our neighborhood and our constituents to come. But I do want to point out, this is an open street. It's not part of this event that's happening today is not part of open culture. And I do feel like even though I think open cultural culture is a great start as a city program, it's like it, there's a lot of gaps and uh, needs to be fully expanded. And even the open street program, which is a really fabulous initiative at transforming public space, has a lot of problems like this street that we're on now. It's 103rd Street between um, Broadway and West End Avenue. And it's an open street, but when it's not being activated now, where we fully shut it off, there are barricades at either end, but it doesn't stop the cars. And yeah, so now we, is, and we have a car coming through right now. Right now. Well, actually, and that's right. a car that's leaving that was supposed to have vacated yeah. the street. We had a permit to have all the cars cleared, and they didn't all leave and this one is and, and, he's, and he's struggling <laughs> to get by the <laughs> trying to leave yeah. in the middle of many, this many of and there's kids and hula hoops and he's running the hoops over I mean, <laughs> of, 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 yeah. course, but, <laughs> of course these programs are put in place by the city but you know it, they leave it up to the people you know to run them and we can and and as you were saying like yes the arts artists are resilient and we, we we're flexible we know how to walk yeah. into a space and turn it into something i mean that dance you did today you know here's this dancer that I worry about thinking, how's she going to dance on the street? And she made this fantastic dance that lasted three blocks and, and, and figured out what the, what the dancers should wear on their feet and how to make it work, but, and danced around the car. So we have to deal with those things that are not happening that, that may be, you know, um, for other kinds of outdoor programs, street festivals, you know, the, the, the block parties that the city has traditionally done. When they when they actually help and move the cars, so those things aren't happening like they might happen. Yeah, what are those challenges? What well, are the challenges? I think, like to for instance, when we were rehearsing here, like we couldn't rehearse on the street because the cars just like kept coming through, and just, we just like grab a minute. And you know what? What this is an open street. We want to. We're we're saying that the cars shouldn't be using this as a through block, right? So let's shut it down. You know what I mean? Let's actually like permanently oh, shut it down. Well, not shut it down. The words that we use is open it. Let's open it I for like people. That. Close it to cars, but open it for people. And I think we, if we do this, this is it's an, it's part of arts, but it's also understanding the kinds of changes we need to do to make our city more sustainable for the future. We can't rely on on cars for transportation anymore, the way that we have. They can't take up so much of our public space. These are dinosaurs of you know fossil fuel age that we got to get rid of them and plant native grasses on our streets and and celebrate and get together with folks and make me art and music and here we are in on this open street and there's artists and community and other people it's not just the arts and i think again like why we have some martial artists over here martial artists you have kids you have all different age groups here and i think that's really what's important for me anyway to say that the arts is shouldn't be separated it's part of the ecosystem and here's an opportunity to show that you know and that only that but these artists that are performing today live in the neighborhood i mean that's the key and the beauty of it all right let let me ask you this because it just occurred to me we have open culture open art open streets and you're separating the two artists need to eat when an artist performs, they're performing inside, you pay for a ticket, you, you go in. How does that work in an open street? 
So we have we lost 100% of our earned revenue in um, you know in the since COVID, 100% of earned revenue. We have made that up slightly by uh, you know funding from like Dance NYC uh, coronavirus fund. We've had funding from the you know New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, from LMCC, from and from individual donors. So all of our programming right now is free. And all of our uh, support comes, you know, is uh, unearned. What, what they call quote unquote unearned. That's the category. We would like to go back to selling tickets. It has been a goal of mine in 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 uh, with time lapse dance to have a lot of free programming anyway. Our productions don't rely that heavily on ticket sales, but uh, we do get a lot of um, income from performance fees and from touring and from traveling and things like that that we have not been able to do. So. At the same time, we feel a mandate to keep sharing this work, keeping it alive. Um, I think that these programs need to be funded in some way, supported, yeah. and and you know I, I'm trying and, to and figure right that now, out. And right now, right now, you're Jody, you're funding this, right? This, this time lapse stands. I'm not personally funding. Time lapse stands is a not for profit, <clears throat> and we accept donations. You can go to the website timelapsedance.com, and you can make a donation to support the artists. So we, our funding comes from our board of directors, our donors, New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, LMCC, and other fund and other funders. What we're not getting is the you know is the earned revenue. But if you would like to, if you like what you see, and you and you feel that it's meaningful to you, you're welcome to make a contribution to help support these programs. Right. And and through yeah. the open culture program is set up so that you could charge admission, so people could come to the street and actually have a ticket that they cut that they would that and they could enter the space. But I don't really we haven't figured out how to make that work yet because outside of that space, if you define it by rope or string or barricades, then people on the sidewalk don't pay. So it's a it's a tricky model. The city agencies keep saying, you know, your artists be creative, figure it out, you can do it, like have donations. But I think again that if we think about you know streets even as venues, let's say, and that the artists who's performing should get paid and that the people that are helping to do the work should get paid. I'm 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 pushing for um, you know, uh, mon you know, funding and money for not only the artists, but for the people like myself, the cultural producers and the managers and the production people who actually are putting on the work. Right. And it's also it's a different. There's some kinds of work that lend itself to being outside, and that and you know we had sort of already moved in that direction when this happened, so we were prepared. Like with the event we walk in September, and with this now, and moving forward to next September, we, you know, we um, are understand what we can and cannot accomplish, and how we can do what we do cheaply, which by also harnessing all the partnerships that we have in the neighborhood. Uh, but if you're an artist and you're used to just going into a theater, like you, the thing that I think like open cultures and the streets, they don't. One of the main things that nobody ever talks about is. Where are the dancers or the performers supposed to go to the bathroom? Well, that's the thing. Where that's do they change? What is the green room? How are they, you know, are you going to, standing around on, on, on concrete for an hour? When does it begin, you know, where do you exit, where do you enter? If you're not used to doing site work, these are considerations that are of, of, of type of performing that's totally different than a theatrical. That's right. And that's what we actually have a whole thing we call best practices, which yeah. is like, you know, what does it mean to be outside? What do you do when that drunken man, who, which, uh, you know, dances in your dance beats, which I've seen happen? Or, you know, what do you do when that uh, helicopter's over your head and you have to stop? Or what do you do when the bird, you know, is attacking your audience? All those things just being outside. Wow. What do you do when that passerby you know, that neighbor like yells at you because your work is too loud or no, whatever and, it might be and, and, and being outside in a public space yeah. that is that you can't control. So, and I think what Jody did is great. You're right. We're not looking to turn streets into theaters. 
you know, putting up a stage and making it a theater, that, that's not so interesting. It's how do you use these streets in, in creative new ways, and I think that's what the art is. It's a different animal. It's a, it's a different thing right. you're doing. Can you think of one instance, Jody, a, a, a story that something happened while, while your performers were working? Well, yeah, I mean, one thing is that our work is pretty interactive, but we did that because we have these costumes that are made from hundreds of plastic bags, and we actually collected those bags. And they're from, amazing. From family, friends, yeah. but also from the neighborhood. I'm on a, a local neighborhood group, and I is buy nothing, and we I asked for plastic bag donations, and I went and I collected them, and we made them. So we're walking up the, we're doing this dance going up the street, and in the performance, you know, the kids like are in front of us. So I'm having to kind of shoo them out of the way as I go and scare them. Of course, my daughter is leading the pack, kind of trying to get in my way. And I'm, you know, so I have to kind of, it, it influences the whole performance dynamic because we, they, it, it's much more fun. They become part of the performance and we can weave in and out and around of them as, uh, you know, um, li you know, living, uh, youthful dynamic sculpture. However, if that's not the kind of performance you want to do, it's, you know, or you have to account for the reality of the situation. Um, but you know, it's also, even in the middle of the performance, everyone's coming up to me and trying to talk to me, and I'm like, don't do that, you know? I know. So, but that's, know. that's part of that's it too, right? It, that yeah. makes it, I have to say, many years ago, I, I started summer on the Hudson Festival in Riverside Park many years ago, and um, it's still running. It's a great festival, outdoor festival, with traditional stuff, music and family program, and I brought in dance there, because I love dance, and always worked with dancers, and I brought this uh, dance duo in uh, called Dance Gang, and I, and, I, and I gave them an opportunity to decide what they wanted to do, and they chose the really ugliest, worst part of the park, which was like under the highway in the basketball courts. And I thought, okay, you want to do your dance here? When I thought they were going to do it in the, out in the, in the leaves and in the plaza and on the waterfront. But it was one of the most interesting pieces that I did there. And they were dancing with people playing basketball and there was, and it was really fascinating. So to me, it's always like, what does the artist want to do and how do they interpret the space? And they're the creative people that are figuring out how to make a space work. You know, if you're just going to dance on a lawn, you know, with uh, the, the pretty part of the park, it's not always the interesting space right. that you find. For site work, you want to find the work that is a little bit overlooked or that people aren't seeing so that your performance can draw attention to the, fa you know, some aspect of the space that you weren't aware of or illuminate how that site is being used or what its meaning or history are. Yeah. Okay. So great that we got to talk with you, Jody Thank Sperling you so and Robin Chattel. Uh, clearly, this is, um, this is a new way of engaging with performance and the arts, and um, you're, you're discovering how to do it. Thank you very much for joining us. So yeah. important to the city. Yeah, thank you so much. And before we move on, we'd like to thank Mark Irwin's Jazz Quintet and Wade Ripka's Eastern Blockheads Band for supplying music for this podcast. Ken Coughlin is a longtime Safe Streets advocate and member of Community Board 7. You may remember him as the city leader who got cars out of Central Park. Thank you very much, Ken. According to today's event organizer, Lisa Orman, quote, Ken is a patient, quiet, respectful voice of reason on the Community Board and is helping reshape our neighborhood for the better. Mark Gorton founded Open Plans in 1999 the nonprofit home of Streets Blog, Streets Films, and Streetopia, 
Upper West Side. Through media advocacy, Mark uses the media to push for transparency, accountability, and efficiency in city agencies and fights to empower residents to make changes to their neighborhoods. Christina Weil is a lover of the West End Avenue open streets and joined fellow local Jessica Spiegel to rally volunteers to take over the maintenance of that open street on West End Avenue. Their efforts were thwarted by NIMBYs, not in my backyards, claiming that they would be personally liable for any issues that happen on the open streets. And we're going to ask Christina about that because we were so supportive so of what you were doing. When the street was what you and Jessica were doing. Yeah. And we did our podcast out there for quite a few weeks. Sarah Linton has been on Bar Crawl Radio on the street, and she is a candidate for the City Council in District 6 and a member of Community Board 7. Sarah has been a longtime advocate for safer, healthier streets on the Upper West Side. Ken, Ken Coglin, I want to say my life changed because of you, because you got rid of cars, or you were pivotal in getting rid of cars out of Central Park. And I guess I've been wanting to thank you for many, many years. I mean, that was a no-duh. Cars in Central Park? So how hard was that? Uh, well, uh, personally, it only took me 27 years. <laughs> um, it, uh, you know, when I started in 1991, and then I started leading the campaign in 1996, I thought, well, this will maybe take three or four years. And uh, it took till 2018. And along the way, I think what put us over the top was we had a petition campaign uh, for 100,000 signatures, which we took us five years to get. But that was really what sold the deal. Wow. Well, Alan is a lawn bowler in Central Park. He's a member of the New York, Lawn, York Lawn Bowling Club. Club. So yeah. he, he's serious that he appreciates that. Uh, I mean, I'm a, and a biker and all. It's, it's unbelievable now. I think if you talk to people who didn't know what Central Park was before you made help make that change, I mean, it was an enormous change in the park. I mean, the air cleared. It was safer. I mean, you didn't have to ride on the side of the road with the cars coming through. It was, it's, thank you. Oh, well, you are so welcome. <laughs> And it, it helped me also. <laughs> so Mark, you have a lot going on. Open plans, street blog, street film, Streetopia, Upper West Side. So first, quickly, what is street film? Yeah, that was my interest. What is street film? Street, yeah, street films film. is actually the work of Clarence Eckerson, who you see him in action All right. over there with the video oh, camera. Okay. So over the last 15 years, Clarence has made about a thousand short films on the issues of livable streets and cycling and transit and urban livability. If you go to streetfilms.org or search for street films on YouTube or Vimeo, you can find these videos. And he makes films about what's going on in New York locally, and he travels around the world to particularly, you know, cities like Utrecht and Copenhagen and Oslo and Paris. And um, there's some you know, great footage of best practices from around the world on every topic you could think of, from parking policy to how to run a bus rapid, rapid transit system to how to design bike lanes and manage public space. I mean, so much stuff. I'm going to have to look this up. Street, street films. Yeah, we have um, to have him on the show. You're, you're, you're also a big part of Streetopia, yes. Upper West Side. 
Uh, tell us about that organization. Is, is that a national organization, Streetopia? Upper West Side. It's yeah. It's it's all of the Upper West Side. Okay. Um, and so that's pretty national. <laughs> international. Yeah, it's a very world. international neighborhood. <laughs> this here. is the world. Yeah. yeah. Streetopia Upper West Side has a vision for the streets of the Upper West Side transformed to be livable places for people, and. We, and, and you know Lisa Sladkis in particular, I mean, she's been leading that, that effort, have been working day in, day out for years on transforming the streets. And I mean, this event is just one thing you know, in terms of educating people, building community support, fighting for bike lanes and every little change. And we've been making really great progress. I mean, it's slow and it's grueling, but we're, 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 but we're getting there. Great. Thank you. Christina, Chris, we have talked about getting our podcast out onto Weston Avenue, but I hear that is not happening. Having uh, Weston Avenue open was so wonderful, and I thank you, you and Jessica, your efforts. But what's happened? It changed our lives. I mean, oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And I have to say, I'm like honored to be here with this like evident group of, of people because I really only stepped into this in the fall. Um, or like August, um, you know, I think Jessica and I stepped in at a moment where things were falling apart and we had no idea who was in charge of the uh, open street. And um, after weeks of figuring it out, I think we, we sort of started to understand, um, like it was the NYPD and they weren't happy about it. And I think we would love to bring it back, but we just, because of the way that open streets have been formulated by the mayor, we and the Department of Transportation, we really do need a lot of volunteer support. And so far, it's been kind of hard to raise that level of um, just people power of coming out and moving barricades and checking them and being responsible. Um, and it's too much for one person to do, or two people, three people. So um, hopefully we can raise some more awareness of it and the fact that it, it needs to be uh, a community effort to keep it open. But I agree, it was awesome. There, the sound level came down tremendously. Uh, yeah. um, kids were out playing, elderly were out walking. I mean, it just kind of leveled the playing field and made the street so much better. If, if we were doing this podcast over there on Broadway, which is about a half a block away, yeah. there'd be a whole different sound to it. Here we have this sound, if you listen, you know, listen to what's going on. The sound of people oh. echoing from the buildings. A little boy playing hopscotch. A little boy playing hopscotch right, right in front of us. It's, um, you're right, the soundscape, as an audio person, it, it, it really changes. But Christina, could you say a little bit more, because there's more to that story, because you were getting complaints. Well, okay, so um, Jessica and I, through the help of Streetopia, uh, launched a, a sort of little survey and the, there were little uh, QR codes on the barricades for a couple weeks, and over the course of three weeks, we got over, I think, 400 responses. Um, and, you know, we had maybe 75% of people who really liked it, who said, this is, this is something that has added value to the neighborhood. And then there were some detractors, and we came to the community board to discuss it, and it was um, pretty hostile, so. Not everybody. Not yeah. everybody, but there were a few people who were quite hostile, and um, you know, there were some threats about legal action that we would be liable for moving the barricades um, on behalf of the Department of Transportation. Um, and at that point, I just said, look, until we can resolve that, I, I don't really want to personally be moving barricades if I'm going to be sued for. Yeah. We, we ran into our own situation way at the end of the summer 
we were doing a, um, a podcast out in front of the church, the Greek church, and uh, two sets of police came up and told us to get out. And we'd been, we'd been uh, podcasting all summer on the street. They and didn't so, notice until then. So now um, Gail Brewer has kind of stepped in and said she, she wrote a letter to may, maybe it'll be all right. So, so I guess we're okay here. Thank you, Christina. Sarah Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having um, me. You've been on Barcore Radio on the street. And Sarah is a candidate for city council in District 6 and a member of Community Board 7. Sarah's been a longtime advocate for safer. Oh, wait a minute. I did that already. I'm going <laughs> to. All right, I'm, I really have to go to the bathroom. That's You're the problem. Down. You're right there. It's like my, yeah, here. So, Sarah, we, we've had you on Barco Radio before a couple of times. Now you're running for city council, and we want to get the city council candidates together. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's something we're, we're planning for. But today you're wearing the hat of an open street advocate. So I want to start with a policy question. Great. All right? And the policy question comes from Peter... Firsthoff, who's helped um, yeah. put this together. What do you think of the park-to-park -park idea, 103rd Street vision, where 103rd Street is open from Riverside Park to Central Park? I love it. Yeah, I love it. I think it's great. Um, I think that we need more places like that. And, you know, we have these two beautiful parks, Riverside Park and Central Park, but we can connect them better. And I also have um, some proposals and, and ideas for Broadway as well, which is in the middle of our district, and how we can make more use of that green space. Um, but I think it's a great idea, and it, and it makes logical sense because it goes through the NYCHA uh, development. So giving the, those residents a chance to have, you know, a great way to get to the parks around them. Uh, I, I mean, you can we, we can now see down uh, to, to the uh, to the west, to the east, the west, east, east, <laughs> and, and and over to the west. And it's like imagine if this were like grass and yeah. playgrounds and. And it goes all the way to... Yeah, it would be but nice. But I think, you know, you, I think you would need to have an emergency lane, probably, um, for, the, for folks living in these buildings, especially this is a senior center. But that reminds me of something we were just talking about on West End Avenue, which is the idea that are you requiring volunteers to maintain these open streets, or should the Department of Transportation do it? The Department of Transportation maintains our streets. Oh, what about the parks? Well, or parks, I suppose, if it became kind of like a mini park. But either way, the... The idea that volunteers have to come out in their own time and move barricades in and out when there are design solutions. For example, there's bollards that can go into the ground, you know? So when the street's meant to be open, the bollard goes down. When the street's, or when the street's meant to be for vehicles, the bollard goes down. When it's meant to be open to people, it comes up and blocks the vehicles. So there are design solutions for these problems. We shouldn't have to rely on volunteers. Maybe the city needs a new division, specifically dedicated to open streets. I think it does. Do you, do you think maybe this, some new leadership too? Okay, all right, there you go. There you go. The politicians talking up. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll give you another lead into that. Uh, has the city council done enough to to um, advocate, propose, support open streets? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it you know, DOT is a mayoral agency, so we rely on a mayor with vision and with you know the willingness to push that forward. Um, but the city council can always do more. And I also you know, if I were elected, I would want to push for this as within the district, right? There's citywide things and then there's district things. And is the is your district representative pushing for it or not is another question. Okay, we're, we're going to move away from politics. Sorry. Because we, we are, we are no, 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 you're, that's, that's where your head is apologize. right now. No, there, there, there seems to be, seems to be a battle between drivers and walkers, drivers and bikers, drivers and human beings. Um, it's like the song from Oklahoma, the, can the farmer and the cowman, you know, they should be friends. 
but I'm finding it's very difficult for that to happen. What are your thoughts on that? You, you who are involved with, 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 with streets being open, and we can start anywhere. Ken, here, here I'll, 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 Mark, I'll, go ahead. I'll, I'll start. I mean, so obviously there are multiple points of view, and what you, we live in a country where drivers are super entitled, where they feel like the streets are for them and anything else is not acceptable. We actually just commissioned a poll, which was just completed of likely Democratic voters in, in New York. We asked whether you preferred livable streets or streets for, you know, program for, for cars and traffic. 72% of, of people said they wanted livable streets. 22% said they wanted cars and traffic. So I think it's important to understand that it's a real minority. There's a reactionary 25% who don't like the progress we're seeing, but we can't allow those people to stop us from improving our city and to hurt the majority. And also once these changes happen, I mean, if you just look at the open restaurants program, I mean, there's no way you would have gotten a majority of people to say, let's go do this. And all of a sudden everyone loves it. So a lot of people can't even imagine the streets as anything other than dead places. So, I mean, change is always hard but we're giving a minority a veto and that's not correct. Well, I would argue too that uh, probably a good portion of that 72% have cars and drive them. Well, um, I was going to say actually, it's, it's an interesting, yeah. I know that, I assume that poll was citywide, not just yeah, in the district, wise. but it's, it's an interesting number because in this district, I think it's 72% of people do not own cars. On do the not own side. cars. Do not own cars. Yeah, so, well, you know. 24% of households own cars in this. In this oh, district. On the Upper West Side. Oh, really? Yeah. Only 24%? Only 24%. Wow. I'm so, surprised. But we're giving 100% of the street space, minus the sidewalks, to, to their needs. And what sense does that make? So I just want to add a, a cool, like, I'm, I'm an art historian by training. I'm not, you know, involved in, in sort of like safe streets and advocacy and politics. So um, the City Museum of New York has this amazing app where you can go and like look at old pictures of neighborhoods. And fascinatingly, like West End Avenue used to have double wide sidewalks with only two travel lanes. So, you know, the streets can change and they can be different. So a hundred years ago when all these buildings were put up, there was more emphasis on pedestrians than there were on automobiles. There was no parking. And Broadway was at one time a true mall. The yep. mall was yeah. wider. Yep. And people would walk up and down, and you know. And to your point, it didn't. It wasn't always legal to park on the street overnight. No. Uh, that was 19, only 1950. Right. Maybe we could talk a little bit about initiatives that have been tried and that could be tried. I mean, so far the um, mayor said he wanted to open up 100 miles of open streets, but that's only 1.6 percent of of the streets that are available. I mean, these streets still belong to cars. So what could we do? open up our imaginations to an open streets that you would like to see. Well, I, I would like to see West End Avenue become uh, a permanent open street. I think it's... Um, the entire West End a Avenue. A shared street or a, a park? Um, well, I don't know about a park, but at least what we had um, last year. Over the summer. And what Christina and Jessica uh, managed was um, just fantastic. And it showed the it showed us what a, a street could be other than a traffic artery. And I think the last thing we need is another north-south traffic artery in this neighborhood. We have a number of them, and uh, what, what it's used for is for shortcuts for drivers. 
um, getting to the highway or avoiding the highway. And uh, that just encourages more driving. Um, but I just remember going out there um, on one of the first days and seeing a couple uh, had pulled some chairs out in the middle of the street and were reading the Sunday paper with their coffee. And then just down the block, another couple were playing tennis. <laughs> And you, so you didn't have to go to the, quote, designated recreation area to have fun. You could just walk out your, stoop, uh, your street and use the street. I think I saw that, too, Some a couple yes. playing tennis. Yeah. We, we, we suddenly discovered the amazing architecture of the Upper West Side by walking in the middle of the street. You really don't see the buildings a better exactly. perspective. Mm -hmm. until yeah. you get into the middle of the street and you look up and you see these fantastic buildings that we live amongst that we hardly ever see because of the cars. Yeah. Any other ideas? What, what, Neil? Oh, there, there goes a hula hoop. <laughs> well, I just want to um, pick up on something Ken mentioned, you know, in terms of the north-south arteries, because some people worry, like, if we made West End an open street, would that create more traffic on, you know, some of the other streets? But what we know from other places where this has been done is that you have induced demand, and if there's more streets, more people drive, and if there's fewer places for them to drive, they don't drive as much. So we saw when 14th Street was turned into a busway, yeah, exactly. there was all this panic about the traffic it would cause, and it didn't happen. So I don't think that's, you know, we shouldn't be so worried about that. Yeah, the other analogy is like people said, where am I going to smoke if I can't smoke in a bar? <laughs> and uh, they, they, they figured it out, right? <laughs> right? Is there a plan that brings together all of the transportation needs of the city along with the desired more public space? There is a big community of people out there who are working, and we are you know, to some extent coordinated and, and, you know, and, and to some extent not, but there's, you know, there's a community of people who are working for this. I would like to see a, I think you could pedestrianize 25% of the streets in the city in a relatively short period of time, much, I mean, you know, just a, a couple years. If you look at the low traffic streets, they're not serving very much of a purpose. And I think that a large scale comprehensive pedestrian network, a complete and connected bike network so you can bike safely across the city. I mean, there's a lot of people who would love to bike who don't feel safe biking. And it takes planning. I mean, if we planned our city so that kids could bike to school, they would bike to school. Instead, we plan to make it deadly for them. And so they don't bike to school. If we choose people over cars, we will get a much more livable, amazing city. And if you travel around the world to any of the cities that have planned for people, you walk around thinking like, this is amazing. I'd love to live here. This is, we can live here. We can and, live and, that and way. It, and it can be there in, in a matter of months. One of the things that I'm very concerned with is, is biking. Uh, how are we doing with biking and bike lanes? Grudging progress. I mean, again, the DOT is very timid. Honestly, they basically quit building bike lanes last year. I mean, the DOT just practically shut down last year. So hopefully they'll be a little better this year. I mean, de Blasio is not good at getting stuff done. He undermines his agencies. I mean, if you work at DOT at this point, I mean, the slogan is practically like, why bother trying? Because you're just going to get your boss undercutting you. I do bike and I don't always feel safe. Um, I guess we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, they are building bike lanes. And if you measure progress in terms of decades, we're doing okay. okay. But I'd like to, you know, have the things fixed for these kids who are playing in the street before they have their own children. Alan's been complaining about the bike lanes for years. <laughs> there's, there, there's the area on 8th Avenue right in front of Port Authority 
where it's like you take your you take your life into your hands, well, right? Have, have yeah. you been there recently? It, it got, a little, got a little better. Okay, all right. Yeah. I will I will take a look at it. Now, I, the I just, area on the other side of, of Penn Station is awful, um, or behind where the new yeah. Monaghan Station is. It's like construction and potholes and just you <laughs> walk your bike there. <laughs> There's one more topic that I'd like to cover, and that is we here we are on the Upper West Side, affluent neighborhood. Kids are playing. I see mostly white faces uh, around us. Is it possible to have uh, an equal, fair open street so it's not just in certain neighborhoods? Well, this is one reason why I think it's critical that DOT takes on the role of maintaining the open streets because it's one thing when you live in an affluent neighborhood and you can get people to come together who have time, who have flexible work schedules, who have money to manage that. But if you're relying on people in the neighborhood to manage your open street, it might be a much more difficult in other areas. Yeah. One great thing about connecting uh, 103rd Street as an open street from park to park is that I think it would bring the residents of Douglas houses and the residents in this area better together in a, a better way. We do because it's though we live very close together, black and white, so to speak, um, we don't really interact that much. And perhaps this would give us an opportunity to do so. To, to, to do that. I mean, that would improve my life enormously and I'm sure all, all of our lives here. I think it was a good conversation. Obviously, more needs to be done. Ken Coughlin, thank you so much from Community Board 7 for joining us. Mark Gordon of Street Films and Streetopia UWS and Christina Weil of West End Avenue Open Street. You gotta get that started again, you and you and Jessica. We're, well, we're, she we're, needs help. She we're wants behind some help. you. And Sarah Lynn of the Community Board 7, who in fact is running for District 6 in the City Council. Indeed. And so thank you so much for joining us to talk about this most important topic. Thank you. Um, and thanks for listening to this conversation with Upper West Side community leaders talking about opening up our busy Manhattan streets. This is Barcrow Radio, and you can contact me, Alan Winson, and my co-host, Rebecca McKean, at barcrowradio at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs>